welcome to The Connected Generation. My name is Nikkei Anani and I'm your host. This week I was joined by Dr. Paul Hokamaya, who is just an all-round incredible, amazing ball of light. And in addition to that, <laughs> he is a licensed marriage and family therapist. His jam is resolving complex, sensitive nuanced issues that one sees in high net worth families. He is the author of Fragile Power and he seeks to set a new standard to see culturally competent and clinically effective care for high net worth families who struggle with mental health, personality, relational and addictive disorders. So I can, you can appreciate that this is really important work. Dr. Paul is just, oh my goodness, so smart. Um, so, so smart. So, um, so caring, so empathetic, and such a light. So I encourage you to tune in and enjoy. Hi, Dr. Paul. Welcome to The Connected Generation. I can't wait for this conversation. Thank you. I've been looking forward to it as well for a couple of weeks now. So it's yeah. good to finally sit down with you again. Yes. So you are big on healthcare, mental health. You're an author. Um, can you just talk us through your journey, how you got to where you are today? Well, I think we may need more than an hour for that one. Because <laughs> it's, it's rather long and circuitous. I'll try to give you the Twitter version. <laughs> the Twitter version. Hashtag. Of it. Yes, indeed. Um, well, it started uh, when I was born, and that was a while ago, so you can see how long <laughs> this is going to be. Um, you know, I was born in America. I'm American, as you can tell from my accent. I was born as a white male in a middle-class family that was very aspirational, and we were told, I was taught from my family and from my religion and from the culture and the community that money and power and success were the keys to the kingdom. And if you had all of those things, then you wouldn't have any mm. problems. So I, I, I began my educational journey in a very traditional way. I was an economics major in college. Then I went to law school and uh, became a lawyer. And I went into banking and corporate bankruptcy. And then by a uh, very fortuitous combination of situations i was able to leave the practice of law mm -hmm. at a fairly young age and i went into the realm of philanthropy and i went into um gay and lesbian civil rights work with the human rights campaign in washington dc and then after doing that for a little bit of time i went into the environmental movement and i was doing environmental justice first with the sierra club in america and then with greenpeace international in Amsterdam, and I moved to Amsterdam, and I was living in Europe, and uh, September 11th happened, and there was a white privileged male who had grown up in America, the security of my world had always been guaranteed, and then it wasn't, and I had a profound existential crisis, um, and I was, I was shaken to the core, mm. I was living in a foreign country, and all I wanted to do was just come home, you think we know that mm. kind of that, that when we're faced with, with trauma, where we have this, our instincts call us to go back home. And so moved back to America, started working as a concierge lawyer with one of America's wealthiest families, doing more transactional work for them, helping them set up their foundation. And part of that family dynamic was dealing with a daughter who was a crack addict. Mm. 
And um, she was in a crack house in Phoenix, Arizona. And the family had been throwing enormous amounts of financial resources at this problem, thinking that money and their power and their success could fix the problem. And in fact, it was just compounding it and it wasn't being properly addressed. And I was fascinated and riveted and terrified. And um, and then I really began my journey in mental health. I decided that what I really wanted to focus on was the process of healing and, and empowering hope and mental health. And so I went back to school and I did a master's degree in clinical psychology uh, with a focus on family systems. And I was did my internship at a free clinic in Hollywood working with HIV-positive transgendered sex workers, and then simultaneously working with this extraordinarily wealthy family. And mm. I saw that while the externals of their lives were very different internally, they were the same. They were human beings wow. who were mm. suffering from a host of mental health and attachment disorders, trauma responses. And the field that I was going into, the field of behavioral health, had done a fairly good job of working with people who live in, in the margins of society in positions of powerlessness. Yeah. So if we think about the very robust clinical philosophies, feminist theory is very rich and meaningful. LGBT, the concept of minority stress. The other side of the power and economic bell curve, people of power, the field of behavioral health had done nothing. And in fact, when I was asking around in my graduate programs, people were saying, well, why would you waste your time studying those, th- those people? Mm. And there was this objectification and this marginalization that, that I, it just didn't sit well with me because I had had the privilege of living with those individuals and seeing that those people mm-hmm. were human beings, just like everybody else. And that, 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 that the experience of being human doesn't have an economic threshold. Oh, that is so good. if we can say, so if you're, if you live on the poverty level, then you're deserving of clinically competent and culturally relevant care. But if you are in the top 10%, then you don't. That just doesn't sit right yeah. with, with me. And mind you that the people who live in the top 10% of our world are making all the decisions that control the 90% of the rest of the world. Yeah. So we need to make sure that they have you know, that they have competent mental health services. Um, so I, I, I had a waking, you'll see this. See, I told you this is a long story. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Keep going. Uh, but so I had a, I had an awareness. I had an epiphany. I, I found that the people in my master's program who were talking about those people, mm. I, I didn't sit well. So I decided to go back to school and I did a PhD in psychology and I focused on those people. I focused on what is it like to live in the skin of a person of extraordinary wealth. And I did a qualitative study and I looked at that experience on three significant levels of their existence. The first is something called the intrapersonal. Mm-hmm. What's my internal, what, how do I view myself? What's mm-hmm. my level of motivation? What's my self-concept? What's my self-esteem? The second is interpersonal. How does that impact the primary relationships in my life? And the third is social culturally. So what does it mean to be a person of wealth in our society and our culture right now? Just like we would do for a person of color or a woman yeah. or a Jew or a Muslim or anybody else. Because those relationships have a profound impact on how the person 
manifest themselves in the world. And we want everybody to manifest themselves with compassion, with empathy, and with, with a spirit of repair and healing and hope. So I did that work. I did that dissertation, and then I took it directly into the field of behavioral health, and I worked in the field of addiction treatment. Uh, and I was setting up some addiction treatment programs uh, for treatment centers around the world, dealing with that, this population of cultural competency. Because mm-hmm. if we know it's a minority, then we know that they would have distinct cultural markers. And then through my work, I developed, uh, identified three distinct cultural markers of this population, which are uh, isolation, suspiciousness of outsiders, and hyperagency, which is this capacity to control your world to avoid any discomfort. And mm. I realized that, well, wait a minute, <laughs> what are we asking a person to do when they come into psychotherapy or to go into a treatment center? We're asking them to go against every single one of those cultural markers. And then we wonder why we lose extraordinary lights, like Whitney Houston, for example, who mm-hmm. was always, I've always felt that that was such a tragic loss or that, that people of power and wealth don't get the proper mental health services. And look, this isn't a better than, less than. Rich people are more deserving, less deserving. Poor people are more deserving, less. It's just that everybody deserves to get care that meets mm-hmm. them where they are and moves them in a reparative direction. So then I, I was approached by Hazelden Publishing to write a book on my work, which was a gift. Because Hazelden really understood the need for integrity in the work. Mm. And I did that. And then my book came out in October of 19. And it's been very well received around the world. It's been mostly well received in Europe, which is very interesting. Mm. Uh, Europe, the Middle East, India, uh, America, it's done well. Uh, and so I've been doing that. And then the pandemic hit and I had another existential crisis. So I'm trying to pivot again, but I'm not quite sure what that pivot will be. I did, I, I did apply and I was accepted into a fellowship at Harvard Medical School, which I start in a month's time. So I'm going to focus more deeply on providing culturally competent care on a global level and figure out, figure out what that means. So here we are, here we sit. Here we are. No, that was, wow. Um, The whole piece on dehumanization of people of wealth is something that is so important to shed a light on because as you said, um, a lot of folks in society do see those of at the top upper end of the economic bell curve as those people um and as you said we are um we're a collective humanity so if we're dehumanizing any one of us we're dehumanizing ourselves ultimately and i love that's right the point that you highlighted that this top 10 percent are making decisions for the rest of the 90 percent. so we do need them in their best um in their best versions of themselves. I want, there's a lot for me to unveil, firstly. Um, the research that you did, where you find out these key character, common characteristics of people of wealth, isolation, suspicion of outsiders, and hyperagency. Can you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. So it speaks to the nature of human beings, which we were talking about in our in our pre-show. I'll call it our, our pre-show, yeah. <laughs> where, where, where we were talking about uh, the need to really kind of unite around the spirit of of repair and of hope. So, you know, human beings, where we forget because we dress up quite nicely, don't we? Um, and and uh, mm-hmm. we we forget that we're animals, you know, that, that we are driven by animal instincts and. 
central to those instincts are, is our hierarchical nature. So mm-hmm. we organized ourselves around the powerful others. And we saw that very clearly in America um, with the past election or the prior election before Biden with, with the way that people uh, uh, um, really idolized Donald Trump and gave mm-hmm. him extraordinary power by virtue of his financial success and the power that he yielded in the world. And so, so you have organisms, we, we organize ourselves in a hierarchical structure. And then we also are tribal in nature so that we organize ourselves around a common interest and against a common foe. So isolation and suspiciousness of outsiders is not unique to this social class. Mm-hmm. All minority groups have that. Yeah, people of color, gay and lesbians. We know uh, religious communities. We all organize ourselves around common interests, right? Mm-hmm. That's the way that we operate. What is unique to this particular population is this construct of hyperagency, so that which speaks to the power inherent in a wealthy identity construct. Mm. So people of wealth can use their wealth to avoid discomfort. And in fact, their lives are basically set up to avoid discomfort. I'm not going to go to an airport. I'm going to fly mm-hmm. private. I'm mm-hmm. not going to go to a clinic. I have a concierge doctor who will come to me. We saw that with Michael Jackson. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we have, we, and it happens on all different, different levels. And so you have a team of people who serve you. You don't cook, you have a chef, you, the list goes on and on, doesn't it? You have, um, uh, an educational consultant that helps you get your children into the right schools. And so, so there's that. And so that nation, notion of hyperagency is really the greatest challenge to this particular population getting the mental health services that they need. Mm. So why does that hyperagency stop them from getting that point? I'm not really sure. On. I would have because what going, the means you've got. Well, because there's, there's two, there's, 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 internal motivation to change and external motivation to change. And so typically Mm -hmm. the way recovery happens most effectively when a person's internally motivated to change. So they, Uh they are sick and tired of being sick and tired. They're just, they don't want to live this way anymore. And going into psychotherapy, going into a clinical setting, a mental health setting requires an extraordinary amount of courage. Mm. It requires an extraordinary amount of vulnerability you have to sit with some another human being and trust them enough to give them access to your psychic emotional pain. Mm. That's, that's one of the most intimate relationships that you ever have. And you need to be able to trust that they can hold it for you mm. and give it back to you in a way. And that requires an incredible amount of discomfort I mean, who wants to talk about a traumatic experience in their childhood, especially if you're a titan of industry, particularly mm-hmm. if the world is looking to you, has put you on a pedestal and, and has vested in you extraordinary powers. Mm. You can't show any vulnerability to the outside world. I mean, one of the reasons why Donald Trump was, was, was idolized was because he would just double down and people would criticize him. He would just double down and not admit any culpability or any liability a weakness mm-hmm. whatsoever. And that's kind of at the heart of psychotherapy. You have to say that, look, I'm, I, I'm just overwhelmed by depression and I just can't, I can't get through this or I'm just paralyzed by anxiety and I can't get, I just, I need help. And this particularly for men, women are much more relational. So women have a much easier time. Millennials are quite clever at all of this, Joe. Your generation is really yeah. embracing this mm-hmm. mental health 
my generation, not so much. Uh, but but it's it, it's it's this it's this capacity of not seeing mental health as a weakness, but actually seeing it as as a way to 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 bring your move yourself in a higher to, which is one of the things we were talking about in the pre-show too. Top moving into a higher consciousness, moving yourself yeah. up into a higher state of being. Wow. Um, so I'm like an advocate for agency. So I never, I've never come across this word hyper agency. Um, so this is like really interesting to me. I've, as we were talking, I ordered your book. <laughs> like okay. I need to read more. I need to learn more on this. That was absolutely chapter seven and eight does all the clinical stuff you need. So awesome, awesome. Um, can't wait to dive in. And you mentioned that it's like a bit of a generational. Um, different generations have different attitudes towards mental health and they're embracing of being more vulnerable for for you know your healthy founder patriarch um ultimate embodiment of you know um power so to speak that might have emotional pains how do they typically deal with it if um how can folks outside of them know that there's pain there um, so typically, uh, like, it's a generational thing. So first generation tends to have what's called a very strong internal locus of control where they've made, you know, they've, they've transcended extraordinary odds to mm-hmm. realize great success. And so for them, emotional vulnerability was not an option that they had to be so focused and so driven on an external marker of success to get where they are. And so a recognizing that they don't, they don't have the vocabulary. Don't expect them to have the vocabulary that you have Mm. because they just don't. Um, And so also recognizing that the approach needs to happen in a language that they can understand in terms of, production and in terms of you know maximizing their place in the world and saying look you've done very well in the quantitative aspects of your life you seem to have some challenges in the qualitative aspects your wife left you your children aren't talking to you you know wow let's use some of the traits that you've used in acquiring your wealth into these other areas these emotional Mm -hmm. realm of your life and then you you meet them where they are and so move and then move them incrementally in a reparative direction but your question was how do we recognize that yeah and so you know typically what happens is that you see people reach a point in their life developmentally where they've attained all these markers of success and they're suffering from some sort of self-destructive behavior whether it's destroying significant relationships because of personality presentation or they're overeating or they're engaging in compulsive spending or they're having affairs mm. or they're they're doing something which while you in moderation could improve the quality of their life but it's now it's taken it's it's it's, it's been ramped up and it's causing it's starting to cause destruction in their life and um mm. chances are they probably won't recognize it and so the art of all of this, right? I mean, there's psychotherapy, mental health, the delivery of mental health services is a calculus of science and art. We have to know the science. We have to be basing our interventions on the best science, but the delivery system is an art. So I can have all the best vaccines in the world, but if I don't have a, if I don't have a system, if I don't, if I have faulty needles, then that medicine is not going to get into the patient. And so my work in terms of what I've done in my book, Fragile Power, is to develop 
a new uh, a new way of of dealing with the art of psychotherapy with the people of power and delivering them the message delivering them the medicine through a medium that that they can handle that, that that's culturally appropriate to them for to them which totally makes sense and is truly in service to them um meeting them where they're at i can't wait to dive in i really can't wait to dive in wanted to talk a little bit more about addiction because you mentioned that um that's really what was one of the key things that pulled you into this whole world of mental health and we see a lot of it in wealthy families but um a lot of the time families don't want to air their dirty laundry and keep it in the family and not deal with it but um, it does have huge implications for succession and family dynamics and 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 what have you when we're building this wealth and potentially enabling um, family members to have access to money to carry on with addiction just wanted to know this whole world of addiction which in itself is probably a four-hour podcast <laughs> boy I'm telling you it is it is it is a sticky wicket it is it is complex um, but certainly not impossible uh so we'll start with the science so addiction is a brain disorder so the person who suffers from an addiction has a brain that's wired differently and so um Mm -hmm. the basis for addiction is in the neurotransmitter hormone called dopamine and so dopamine is our Mm -hmm. feel-good is a feel-good hormone and so cocaine for instance fills us with extraordinary amount i mean just just like uh, explodes our central nervous system with euphoria and so but that changes our why the wiring of our brain doesn't it because now our baseline for euphoria is 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 at an artificial level so Mm -hmm. people keep chasing that original high and then addictive addiction sets in alcohol is a depressant Um, alcohol also creates a sense of dysphoria it enables people to from detach from an unpleasant reality Mm-hmm. If it's only for a moment, but there's a, there's a, there's a reward, right? I mean, there's, there's people start using drugs, not because they think they're going to become addicted and live under a bridge. They become mm. addicted because they take a substance and it makes them feel good. It makes they, mm. it makes their life better until it doesn't. Mm-hmm. And then there it's when it, when it shifts and then they find that, that their drug is making decisions for them as opposed to them, you talked about agency being important to you. Mm -hmm. Think about it in terms of losing agency, Mm -hmm. that you've given your personal agency over to a substance or a behavior that now controls your life and makes decisions for you and not great decisions. Mm -hmm. So there's, there's a destruction that occurs. So the interventions, the solutions has to, they have to, you have to look at, you have to look at the brain chemistry and I'm a firm believer in psychopharmacology in terms of medication that there are great medic you know there's great medications that if people have an anxiety disorder if people have depressive disorders that you can begin to treat those and then simultaneously you have to begin looking at the uh, the context within which the addiction exists and so you have to work this is where the art of psychotherapy comes in you have to work in those systems to dismantle those triggers Mm. that make the person resort back to the addiction. And you have to give the brain 90 days is a good time, you know? And and so of course now there are all these addiction treatment centers where people go to rehab and 
I think that rehabs are important because I think that it gives people a period where they can get out of the system that they were in and mm-hmm. into a new system. Um, and then they can give their central nervous system and their brain time to rewire a bit mm-hmm. and, and stabilize. And you can detox the patient and then you can, you know, figure out what they need medically to stabilize them. So it provides a window. The issue has become, and then as I write about it in my book, finding the right treatment center. So mm-hmm. there's been an explosion over the last 20 years of these executive level private pay treatment centers that charge anywhere from 100,000 euros to 250,000 euros a month What for people <laughs> to go. And, you know, you have to wonder, like, what? what? So and this is where, yeah, oh, yeah. People, I have had family, worked with families that have spent half a million, a million dollars on just putting patients just in treatment centers, but without looking at the money and these. Yeah, it's it's, it's pretty it's pretty tragic. It's heartbreaking. It is. So the so as I write about in my book, and and I've had conversations with many of these people because private equity firms are starting to try to get into this because they. You know, they, it's a whole, the business of, of rehab is, and that's one of the reasons why I wrote my book, because I wanted to provide a roadmap for institutions, organizations who are really interested in, in, in having clinical significance to their program and being able to dismantle these destructive systems and meeting the patients where they are. Now, do I think that all patients should go to a charity facility? No. Do I think some should? Absolutely. I think it depends upon the situation. I don't think there's one size that fits all. I think oh. that there there is some place for these facilities. That if the if I have a Russian oligarch um, who has enormous amount of power in the world looking at him, discretion is important, mm-hmm. and so we need to take that into consideration. And so we need to look for a facility that can provide those that heightened level discretion. Mm-hmm. That's a clinical decision. It's not a marketing decision, right? Yeah. So everything needs to be viewed through a clinical lens. Who is this particular patient? And where, what environment will provide them what's called an egocentric environment? It's a fancy word. You know, you like fancy words. <laughs> egocentric environment. That means it's consistent with their identity in the world. Mm-hmm. Because what happens when you get a patient, particularly of this population, they're going to identify out. If you put them in residence, these people aren't like me. I'm different from them. Look, I just sold my company for a billion euros. Um, I'm just, I'm a, this guy's a schmuck. You're a schmuck. You're like, I've had patients tell me that, that I'm, I'm a schmuck. And I'm actually not, but okay. We can we'll work with that. We'll work with the schmuck thing. So, so uh, because they're trying to yield their power, right? They're trying to say, everybody responds to me and now you're challenging me and all this, but I have enough ego strength that I can, I did it first. You can have that. I'm old enough. I'm like, okay. So um, I'll be a schmuck. So, uh, (laughs) so I forgot where I was going. I got lost in the schmuck tangent. Um, So you have to put them in an environment that, that, that mirrors back 
their sense of identity in the world. But then you also need to be able to move them in a repairing direction by challenging them. So if I have mm-hmm. a third generation trust fund kid, would I put them in a hundred thousand dollar a month treatment facility? Probably not. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, unless they're like they have some big name for like a famous surname, and there's an important need for discretion. So, but mm-hmm. it, it's a case by case basis. So I'm not saying that these facilities are bad if so factor just because of their price points yeah but i'm saying that you need to have a distinct clinical approach so you need to explain to me why this price point has clinical relevance as opposed to relevance to your return on investment yeah you'd be amazed you may be amazed at the talent the inability of many of these facilities to articulate that no, this but is... now they say because but but I read your book. I'm like, well, yeah. that's not going to get it done. Tell me what you've learned. <laughs> oh, good grief! Um, I wanted to take a step back a little before the family, the wealthy individual. It's at that point where I need help and I need to choose a facility or choose some kind of rehabilitation, rehabilitation or remedial process. Getting to the point of acceptance of the status quo, um, whether it's the individual that's dealing with a lot of shame. um, And as you said, like a Russian oligarch person that's exuding so much power, you know, you're you're the schmuck, you know, like we're not going to have this conversation on my weekends, right? And even the family, like we said, not wanting to air the dirty laundry, sometimes they just kind of pretend that everything is absolutely fine, even though Johnny over there, he go, he disappears for weeks on end, we can't reach him, he's always smelling funny, he's always showing all the signs. How, how can families get to, you know, this place of, how can they break that bubble and start to deal with the reality start having a conversation to move forward and hopefully heal and seek redemption. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, you have to get your, your ducks in a row. And I think that, you know, you need, and one of the greatest challenges of this work is finding people who you can trust. You know, you go on the internet and you, you Google high-end treatment centers and you're going to get, a, mm. you're going to get a lot of paid things. And so, who do you know? And so I approach the work through, like a family office would, yeah. who, who's managing an investment portfolio. So you want to go out and you want to interview managers and you want to find out who's the best manager who you feel like you can trust with your greatest family asset, mm-hmm. which in the financial realm is your capital, financial capital. But in this realm, in the mental health realm, it's your family's emotional capital and your mm-hmm. emotional well-being. So you have to do your due diligence. You know, you can start on the internet and you can figure it out, but you have to kick the tires. You have to learn all that you can and read all that you can. And um, and and people are now starting. You know, this is a very new niche: mental mm-hmm. health and alternative or families. I think I'm the first person that really started talking about it in any sort yeah. of clinical way. Yeah. There's been a lot of great work done around family governance and family constitutions. What I found in my work is that those constitutions are fantastic but they can sit in a drawer and get dusty. And then the family just, there's all sorts of issues that play out that keep yeah. those constitutions from getting implemented. And so addressing the family dynamics under that. So it is about doing your due diligence in terms of finding, finding your manager 
mm. finding your manager who, who or the guy or the gal who's running your family office the same way that you interview them. Do that level of due diligence. And it's a handshake business. Mm. I, my work doesn't scale. Mm. It's, a, it's still very much a handshake business. Maybe one day the internet will take over and somebody will develop an app for this. And lots of people are trying. And I think that apps do have some validity in terms of managing anxiety and depression and things like that. And mindfulness apps are brilliant. Um, I, I feel that this is very much like a bespoke mm-hmm. artisan coffee kind of a thing. It's a handshake. It's a handshake business. Yeah. I don't not for everyone and not everybody's for me. You know, I work on my, like I said, my work doesn't, doesn't scale it's very individual and every family is different i work everything from christian conservative families in texas to conservative muslim families in saudi arabia i mean it's all it's all figuring out what 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 is unique to the particular family and and having a, a fit and the other bit you know just like i approached my research on three different levels of existence you know we also we have to look at this when a family's looking at this we have to take cultural and religious oh this is going to absolutely mm-hmm. i mean that has to be one of the first conversations because if i have a if i'm if i'm a if i'm a religious muslim living in saudi arabia and my daughter develops an alcohol problem mm-hmm well now talk about discretion talk about how we have to handle this in a highly highly discreet highly culturally highly highly religiously sensitive way i was literally that was my next question for you because i know that in collectivist cultures um there's a lot more um premium is that the right word or emphasis on the face of the family the family's name and society and that can even stop families from wanting to acknowledge this addiction problem because um then we have to explain where molly is or shalira went for six months um that's right right and why she's acting strange all the time and and i was going to ask you about you've mentioned that your book particularly was quite popular is quite popular in Europe why do you think that is any cultural trends you're seeing um and things I think because Europe has understands unity and I think that Europe understands America is so divided right now Mm. it's just we're so radicalized and polarized on based upon political for political ideologies neither one is wrong we've just kind of gotten so divided and everything is just shrouded in conflict and and mm. and i think europe understands the need understands the importance of unity i think the under, europe understands the importance of working collectively you know the whole concept of the european union mm. is important and i think that europe has a real understanding of mental health needs you know because Look, you know, look at look at World War II. It was not fought on America's soil. It was fought in Europe's soil, right? And so I think that other countries, America has been very blessed with a tradition of with with a history in terms of not having any wars fought on our, you know, we we. And, but other cultures. I mean, look at look at Africa. Mm. I look at India. I mean, look at Afghanistan. Look what's happening in the Middle East. Mm. Look at look at Israel and Palestine. I mean, yeah. look at. Look at the daily trauma that 
that people live with. Um, and so I think that the people are recognizing, I think there's a deeper understanding for the need of unity and the need of mental health and collaboration and, and reaching out. Um, and that's, that's my, that's, that's, that's my understanding. And I just think that America, we're at a point now, I hope I'm, I'm optimistic that it's going to get better, that we can create some unity. And look, one of the, one of the goals of my work, you know, I, I based my research and my work on feminist theory, which maintains mm. that the personal is political. And I think that there's a political Sorry, component to all of this. The person is political. The personal is, the, the personal is political. Is political. Mm-hmm. It means basically that historically when we looked at social ills, we looked at our political system to solve them. So if you look at the women's right to vote, right? You look at suffrage. You looked at women were were denied equal access to voting. They were put in in a inferior position in our society. The political mm-hmm. system changed that. Women demanded in England and America demanded the right to vote, paid an enormous personal price for it. Mm-hmm. But the political system was able to solve that problem. Now the political system is causing an enormous amount of social ills in our mm-hmm. society, questioning the science around COVID. Who should get facts? Who, you know, like, is, is the data that we're getting around the science of COVID truthful? And are people willing to get vaccinated? It's a huge political issue. Mm-hmm. So the division is causing that. My goal, a large part of my work, is uniting people through issues of mental health. I think we can create a converse, common conversation around it and mm-hmm. to say that, yes, everybody on the economic bell curve suffers from issues of mental health. Is it a big goal? Yeah, it is. But I see division interpersonally, interpersonally and social culturally causing an enormous amount of pathology in our world. Mm. And I think the way to do that is to have these conversations like you and I are having right now, cross-culturally, yep. cross-gender. We're talking about issues of mental health and we all have, we all have, I certainly have had my mental health challenges. I've had mental health challenges in my families. You know, it's, it's the thing that, it's the thing that, that my Christian conservatives and my Christian and my conservative Muslims have in common. Yeah. Yeah. And why do you think our generation, millennials in particular, are just kind of like effort? That's, yeah, I've got anxiety. Well, because first of all, you've been through hell. I mean, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I mean like, you can't I kill mean, me. <laughs> no, you can't. Yeah. Uh, that which doesn't kill us make us strong. I mean, yeah. look, you're facing a planet is burning up. You know, we're, we're you're, the, the income inequality has never been greater. Yeah. Um, unemployment is at a record high. Student debt. Is, is crushing. Mm. Um, there's denial about systemic injustices. Mm. There's, uh, there's, never mind COVID, that we've been in lockdown for the past. There was a financial crisis of, of 2009. Mm. Um, nobody was really held accountable for any of that. So, uh, too big to fail? Like, what message is, what message did you internalize from that as the millennial? Hmm. screw the system i mean like so so i think that because you have been denied access to so much 
you've developed a hunger and meaning from qualitative markers of success, mm. like mental health, relationships. Like, I want to live in a planet where has, that has clean air and I have access to clean drinking water. Mm. Who cares about LGBT, like if gay man wants, I mean, or lesbian, like, who cares? Like, who cares? How, or my kid, who cares? Are my kids going to have drinking water? That's, That's what I care. My priority. Yeah. Are my kids going to have access, the same access to privilege that I have access to? Mm-hmm. So I mean, the issues that you're facing, that you've been dealing, that you've been handed, that you're handed. And by the way, I think you're doing an extraordinary job. Mm. I think, I, I think the focus on mental health, I think the focus on the important, the environment, I think the, the importance on education, on access, on equality, on social justice issues, on racial issues. Brilliant. Mm. Absolutely brilliant. Mm. You're not rushing into hedge funds to make thirty billion, thirty million dollars a year in a bonus. There's, 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 there's more to life than that. And I, I think it's extraordinary because my generation was taught just go out into the world and make as much money as you can. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we're I'm like, we don't, your, we don't even want the money. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so I think that, but I, but I hope that you do. I mean, I hope you recognize that the money is important for what it can do to improve the world. Mm -hmm. Because let's not pretend that money is a bad thing. Let's get away from that. But money is not ipso facto bad. If you use money to provide access to clean drinking water, digging wells for for humanity, or providing education, or or lifting women out of poverty, like that's brilliant. So go make money so you can do that. So go make money so you can do that. Yeah. Money is neutral, right? It's how you apply it, what you use it for. That determines whether it's good or bad. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like electricity, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. It can bring, it can exactly. enab- it enables us to have this incredible conversation. But if I stick oh. my hand in a socket, I'm going to, I'm going to die. You know what I mean? Like it yeah. can be very destructive. We just, yeah. it's like everything in life. It's the yin and the yang. Yeah. And it's that thin membrane. Mm-hmm. That divides chaos from order and from self-creation versus self-destruction. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. For sure, I'd love to close with um, our pre-talk when you were talking about the gift of this season of rebirth and renewal. Can you just speak a bit more about that? Yeah, you know, I think that with this pandemic, with this pandemic thing, <laughs> because I, I, I can't like put a word. <laughs> I think it was like Mother Nature basically got cross with us and said, you know, you're moving in the wrong direction. You need to go to your world and think home, about, yeah. you know, think about what you need to be doing. And I think that this has been, we've been given an extraordinary opportunity for mm-hmm. renewal. Uh, has it been easy? No. Has it been challenging? Like I was talking to you before. Last week was tough for me. I was just kind of fatigued and angry and frustrated with the way things were going and Yesterday, the sun came out and the autumn breeze was in the air and I was just filled with yet another round of renewal and mm-hmm. feeling like oh, we can we can move ourselves, A, not just in a reparative direction, but to a higher level of, of being. Mm-hmm. We're recognizing the thin membrane between order and chaos, between illness and health. We recognize the importance of the primary relationships in our lives. We're recognizing the fact of our powerlessness when confronted mm-hmm. with a pandemic. We're recognizing the importance of clean air and clean water and, and renewable energies and 
I, I think that we've we've not everybody. I divide us into thirds. There's a third third of people who are really focused on cultivating using this to cultivate a higher consciousness and a higher way of being. There's another third that are like, yeah, I may tweak my life for a little bit better. <laughs> and there's a third of people who are just in denial. They're just very happy with the way things are. But we have two thirds of the population who are at least moderately interested in doing something different, in, in emerging from this in a pivot as a, as a bit of a rebirth. Mm. And I think that we've been given, the universe has given us an extraordinary opportunity. Look, you and I would have never met, but not for the Indeed. pandemic. Indeed. We would have been like, look, next time you're in London, we'll have a cup of tea. But, <laughs> but here we are. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I, and I feel very blessed. I feel like this is a gift. This, this conversation and meeting you and the work that you're doing is, has been a gift of the pandemic. So I'm incredibly grateful. No, this is, this conversation has thoroughly blessed me. I've been like taking notes over here and like searching on the internet whilst you've been talking, like this has been, you are a light um, that the world needs at this hour. Um, families have been through a really difficult time and a lot of the conversations or suppressed issues that we've typically kept in closets and not wanting to address um you're bringing them to the fore so we can really find true healing um which is so important in this hour thank you so much dr paul if anyone no 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 problems at all if anyone would like to learn more about your work connect with you how best can they reach you and your book where can they find your book right just google you know the the google god um (laughs) i have a very complicated surname Hokemeyer, H-O-K-E-M-E-Y-E-R, and then you'll find everything you need to find. And then there aren't many of us still, still walking the planet. And then my book is called Fragile Power, and it's available internationally. It's distributed through Simon & Schuster. So have a look um, and let me know what you think. And I'm, I'm kind of all about Instagram right now and LinkedIn because mm-hmm. I just love the visual aspect of Instagram and being able to tell a narrative through pictures and and every day i do a posting that grounds me and i hope you know provides some grounding for the world so google my surname and google fragile power and there you have it awesome awesome thank you so much dr paul it's been awesome having you pleasure oh my word oh the part that touched me was when he said the experience of being human does not have an economic threshold and how he decided to focus on those people. I think it's so important for us to understand the extent of wealthism that's out in the world. Um, We talk openly about racism, ageism, sexism, um, but we don't really talk openly about wealthism. And because we don't talk open about it, it creates this feeling of shame, right? Um, And shame really flourishes in secrecy. It flourishes in isolation. I think it's really important that we start to have conversations on the reality that our society shames wealth. This piece on the dehumanization of wealthy people 
needs to be tackled head on. Because like Dr. Paul said, we are a collective humanity. Dehumanizing one is dehumanizing all. I love it. Absolutely, absolutely love it. And it just speaks to our interdependence. We are not independent as much as the world likes to think we are. And the media portrays it as though, you know, we're all on our lanes. And it's, we are a system of interconnected human beings. And until we understand that it's truly one for all, all for one, and we develop deep empathy for one another, the state of our world will continue as it is. I'm sure, I don't know who's happy with this world. I mean... You can be wealthy and look around and see that our world is so perplexed and laden with so many issues, so many social issues, the state of the planet, um, gender equity issues, income inequalities. So much is grappling the earth right now. And so we need to really appreciate and develop empathy for one another not just empathy for those that are beneath us, so to speak, on the social wrong ladder, but also empathy for those that are above us. Um, It's so important. Anyway, I'm done with my TED Talk, so (laughs) thank you so much for tuning in. Take good care. God bless you.